The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. My guest today is Ryan Gellert. In September 2020, Ryan took over as CEO of Patagonia from his predecessor, Rose Macario. Under Rose's leadership, Patagonia became known for taking on issues ranging from the social safety net to voting rights. But Patagonia has gone one step further during Ryan's reign. The company made its biggest headlines in recent years when founder Yvonne Chouinard declared in September that he essentially was giving away his ownership stake in the business, a company worth roughly $3 billion, to a nonprofit designed to fight climate change. That move has had an impact on the company's employees and Gellert's management, and we'll talk about both. But first, I wanted to get his take on what he's seeing from shoppers in this turbulent economy. Here's our conversation. It's really interesting when we think about the last couple of years, whole economy sort of ground to a halt for a minute, and then it seemed like it was turbocharged. And some channels like e-com were racing ahead. Retail, wholesale were really slow and sluggish. And then it flipped. There's been these headwinds in e-com kind of around the world for the last 12 plus months, whereas retail has outperformed anything that we had expected. And so there's just been this, every time you think one thing's happening, it seems like it moves in a slightly different direction. And then behind the scenes, of course, there's been all the supply challenges that there's been. So I think it's been a really dynamic period in general. What we're feeling now is, you know, I think the leading edge of a recession. And so we're seeing continual kind of headwinds in e-com. Retail continues to perform pretty well. And then with our wholesale accounts who are committing to orders pretty far in front, um, we're just seeing a lot of slowing down, and particularly in our industry, the outdoor space. I think hard goods, people have just loaded up on those in the last couple of years. And I think the fact that those categories are generally slowing, it's putting a lot of pressure on our wholesale accounts open to buy across categories. So in short, we're seeing things slow down, and that's how we're managing the business in response. So how do you manage that response? Yeah, we start bringing down our forecasts. We adjust our cost structure where we can. We continue to be very focused on investing in the things that we believe are critically important, and that's innovation in product, and that's in minimizing the footprint of our business, primarily through our product, and continuing to invest in our people. And so those things we're going to work really hard to protect. There are other areas, whether it be marketing or elsewhere, we've got to look to just kind of slow the pace down a bit. And one more question about the economy. Are you seeing this globally? Are there pockets of strength somewhere or different spending in different countries? I'd say it's more of a global trend, although certainly on a weekly basis, you see different performance elsewhere. You know, we've got a business that does kind of run around the planet. And I think through COVID, we saw things kind of pop up and down in different places, depending on primarily on the status of the pandemic. And I think now we're seeing you know, it's sort of level off and work more consistently than we've seen in a couple of years, probably more like it did going into the pandemic. But week to week, it's it's a pretty dynamic world. I think the one area, no surprise, that's particularly challenging, and we're actually performing well, but I'm just really concerned about the next 12 to 24 months is Europe. Um, you know, inflation there is higher in many countries than it is here in the U.S. It's been awfully high here. And as we head into winter, 
the energy crisis, the cost of and the availability of is a, is a real concern for our people and our communities there. Yeah, I know a lot of uh, business leaders are saying the same things. Leaders in Europe wondering how they're going to get through this and changing uh, how they're running the businesses that they think about uh, energy in particular. So uh, very interesting to hear you say that. There has been such tremendous focus on Patagonia in the last few months, particularly around how you've changed your uh, operating or ownership model. Would you mind walking us through the changes and exactly what they mean? Yeah, anybody that knows Yvonne Chouinard, who is the founder and former owner of Patagonia, knows that he's a pretty reluctant businessman. And so probably would find it as no surprise that for decades he's really asked himself the question, you know, what what's the end game with Patagonia for me, for my family? Um, you know, do we sell it at some point? Do we take it public? Do we do some version of an equity transformation? to put the money to work. And I think that they've, they've thought about that off and on for decades. And over the last couple of years, they became, it became very clear that they, this was now the time for them to answer this question. And it was a real tension between wanting to use the business and its resources and its value to fight the climate and ecological crisis right now in much more meaningful ways than we've been able to. And also, I think, still believing that the business can be a model for a different version of business within a capitalist system. And so if you sell part, if you sell all of it, if you take it public, can you have it both ways? And so we explored the full range of options. And ultimately, what we distilled our list of desires down to is how can we run, continue to run an independent Patagonia with the values that the Chouinards have embedded within it and also use much more money right now to fight the climate and ecological crisis. And so what we did was create a new structure. And it sounds pretty, it is pretty complicated when you get down into all the sort of details of it. But I think the concept's really simple. We created a purpose trust, which governs the purpose of the business. So it decides who's on the board and, and it can remove anybody from the board. So in essence, in addition to our benefit corporation commitments, B Corp commitments that are codified in our articles, we now have this other mechanism to ensure that anybody that is leading the company, and, and that's the board of directors, that's the CEO and others, are staying true to the mission of Patagonia. So that's the first piece of this. The second piece is a collective of 501c4s that will receive dividends annually of the profits of the company, and they will put that money to work fighting the climate and ecological crisis. So in, in, in simple form, we've created two entities, one to make sure we stay on track, the other to put the money to work. And we have the opportunity now to continue to run this business according to our values, which is all we've ever wanted to do. And what and is what I would argue is the biggest impact that Patagonia can have. So how does it change how the company operates, if at all? So one of the things I've been really focused on since September 14th, so it's about 60 days now, is getting in front of every one of our 3,600 people around the world and having Q&A sessions. Because on September 14th, we rolled this out to our employees and provided a lot of context and information. And then we knew there were going to be a lot of questions that came up. And one of those that was going to be top of mind was the question you asked, what does this mean for me? How does this change my job? And, you know, I think in 60 days, I don't think how we run the business or anybody's job within it has changed at all. I like to think of it as, you know, mentally, the job remains very much the same as it has been before. In your heart, I hope that people feel differently about what they do in some ways, perhaps big and perhaps small for others. But I think what that 
what we've really done, and this is the piece that I hope continues to resonate more and more as we operationalize this with and for our people, is that we have now tied our financial value really directly to our values. And I think that's really what we've accomplished with this new structure. So it doesn't change how you operate. Does it change at all how you hire or who you're able to hire? I think it's created a lot of interest in careers at Patagonia. And so I think when a marketplace has been very competitive, we have had a lot more interest in every position that we've posted. So I certainly think we've seen that. As far as you know, the kind of people that we want to bring into the organization, again, I don't think this changes that. I think what we've always been looking for are, number one, of course, people who can do the job for which we're seeking to fill. And number two, people that just demonstrate kind of an intellectual curiosity and an interest in being part of something bigger than themselves and and really contributing to that. And so, you know, one of the questions I always find most important, and it may sound really simple, but I don't think it is, particularly with senior roles, is, is, you know, why Patagonia? And if the answers are about living and working in Southern California or leaving a job that they feel like they've gone as far in as they care to go, those aren't real compelling answers and reasons for why you want to be a part of this thing that we do. Really interesting just for you to say that you are not looking for people who are saying, look, I, I've, I've reached as far as I can go in my career. I want to try something different. You're, when you are hiring, what, what are some of the questions that you're asking? For me, the most important question is, is why this opportunity in Patagonia? And I try to keep that question deliberately open-ended. But I, I think in the first 30 seconds, I think you get a really clear sense of, you know, what's brought the two of us together in this conversation. And You know, I think about a a senior IT role that we were desperate to fill about uh, 18 months ago, and we ended up keeping that role open for about, I don't know, I think over a year. And it was pretty painful for us to run with that role open for that long. But we met candidate after candidate that had just impeccable CVs as far as their work experience. But really, we're struggling to articulate why is this the opportunity that, I, that I'm really passionate about. And so we kept that role open until we found the right person. And I think that that's, you know, going through the punch list of technical skills and experiences is obviously a critical part of it. But I'm, I'm rarely, if ever, involved in that part of the conversation. But really understanding who somebody is, what motivates them, and ultimately why they want to be a part of this, I think, is to me, is one of the most critical aspects. One of the... Um things that your chairman, I believe it was, said when this announcement was made was, this is not woke capitalism. It's the future of business. I was surprised to see that term woke capitalism. Was that a deliberate choice? What does that mean? What are you pushing back against? I don't know the quote that I'm, I'm guessing if it was our chairman, it was Charles. I, I don't remember exactly, exactly who's Charles that quote. Charles. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what the hell that term means. I mean, it gets thrown around a lot. I don't know that it even existed before, say, 24 months ago. And we get this leveled at us all the time. If it's if it's woke capitalism to care deeply about your people, care deeply about the planet we live on, use your business, your voice, work with your people, create opportunities for people to be engaged and use your financial resources to have an impact on the things that, that you feel are most important to all of us. Um, then I guess we're a woke group of capitalists, but I, I think it's a pretty hollow term. And I think what our place in the world is, and, and I say this with great humility, I, I don't think that we're going to be able to change this all by ourselves. It's quite clear that we won't. But what's unique about Patagonia is not that we might be in a position to give $100 million away. It's not the eco innovation that we've pioneered and open sourced over our 49-year history. It's not any single thing that we have done. I think instead it's just modeling a different version of a business operating unapologetically as a for-profit business. And 
being able to operate from the business sector. We're not a government. We're not an NGO. We're a for-profit business. And being able to model a different path forward, I think that's the biggest impact we've had in our 49-year history. And I think the more important question is we near our 50-year anniversary and we look at the world we live in and we project out into the future what our biggest concerns are, what the biggest opportunities are. I think it's still the same thing. It's continuing to model what I'd like to believe is a more progressive version of business in a world that desperately needs that. So talk more about that modeling, because especially in these times, if you are a leader, you're in the C-suite, you're looking around for examples of how you could be running your company. So I know there's a lot of discussions among leaders where they're trying to, they're saying like, how are you doing it? How can I learn about how to apply this to my business? A lot of people have questions about running as a B Corp. That seems mm-hmm. to now people understand how to run that. This is taking uh, governance to a new level or understanding how to, how to apply profits in a way that have an, an impact on the globe. Are you getting people coming to you saying, how can I use this in my company? Yeah, we are. And, you know, I think that I think you catalog it pretty well. There's different ways, different levels of commitment that that companies can make. And I recognize that that each of them, certainly the the model we've put in place is is not a realistic alternative or option for a lot of businesses, public companies in particular. But I think it does. I think what the, this, the structure we've put in place and the fact that we're very intentional and in kind of talking about it. Um, I think is intended to do a couple of things. One is just to expand the possibility and the conversation about what can be done. I think it is really kind of front staged the topic of what is the responsibility of business and what are the opportunities for business to participate in bigger and more impactful ways. The reality is I see it is this. We are living at the leading edge of the climate ecological crisis. I think it's an existential threat to us as humans. It's one of our own creation. And I think we have moved past the point of no return on saying, well, this is a government issue to solve. Governments have proven incapable of doing that. Individual citizens through individual actions will never be capable of doing that. And so I think what we need is all the tools available. So that's government doing what it was founded to do, solve the biggest problems that we face. It's individuals taking accountability through the role of as part of civil society and also in their individual decisions, including their buying decisions. And it's companies stepping up and taking a greater amount of responsibility for the impact that we have in the world. I think that's the only way that we'll be able to solve the issues that we've created. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Patagonia CEO, Ryan Gellert. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back. 
During our live broadcast on LinkedIn, a member noted that a change in diet is one of the most direct ways that people can have an impact on the environment. So I asked Ryan about the future of Patagonia provisions. The reason that we started a food business, and it's a small business compared to the bigger apparel and equipment business, but the reason we started a food business is because we believe exactly as was stated, and it's not just the diet, but it's the way that the agricultural sector works, in our opinion. We look at supply chains that are broken in our our clothing, our apparel and equipment business, and we say, how can we make them less broken? But I think we've really struggled to find ways, um, with a couple of rare exceptions, where you can actually take a supply chain and make it a part of the solution within apparel and equipment. In food, that's really different. Regenerative organic agriculture is an opportunity to actually create healthy topsoil and in the process sequester atmospheric carbon. And so that's the reason that we are participating in this space. That's the reason that we co-founded with Dr. Bronner's and the Rodell Institute, the Regenerative Organic Alliance. That's the reason that we're pioneering regenerative organic cotton for our apparel supply chain in India and Peru. And that's the reason that we started our provisions business. So to answer the question directly, we're at an inflection point with the provisions business, really rethinking some of the things that have worked, some of the things that haven't worked, and asking ourselves, how do we scale the solutions that we're feeling most passionate about? And one of the ones amongst many that we really feel we're onto something is is Kernza, which is a long route alternative to uh, wheat and other more widely used um, uh, grains in in the human diet. And so we've pioneered the use of Kernza in beer, for instance, um, and also in some other food products. And so that's something that we're going to continue to push on. I'd love to understand how you run the company while also keeping up with all of the changes in politics and in science around uh, in giving back to the planet or new grains. I mean, I would think it's enough to be the CEO and be like, all right, I've got to manage these supply chains. I've got to manage these P&Ls. I've got to understand where we're going. I've got to handle my forecast. But you're also talking about working with scientists around understanding how this, how food supply chains are going to work, where to invest in saving the planet, what governments are doing. That seems like a lot to handle. Can you just talk a little bit about how you do your research, how you keep up and sort of how you divvy up your day? Well, I guess the short answer is two things, imperfectly and with a lot of passion. I mean, I think that these are topics that I just have just an insatiable sort of appetite to understand. I think intellectually, they're just so unbelievably interesting. I think that the answer to the question, though, honestly, is being surrounded by incredibly smart and passionate people. And so on every topic that we engage in, we've got expertise buried within the organization, and they are also leaning on and and working with people outside of the organization. And so I think that's where our best ideas come from. From. That's what ultimately I'm able to sort of get distilled and explained to me often by people much smarter than myself internally and externally. I think for me personally, I just find all of this incredibly fascinating. I think the tension for me personally is, is making sure that I'm really focused on the business. And it's not just the financial performance of the business and the strategies of the business. I think in the last couple of years, it's increasingly been the need to really ensure that we're taking care of our people. And that comes in a variety of ways, including in communication and just spending a lot of time in two-way 
conversation with all of our people, one-on-one, small groups, large town halls, and otherwise, and doing as much of that as possible in person, which has also been particularly challenging in the last couple of years. Um, How do I spend my day? It's, you know, I try to get going early and I generally go pretty late and, and, you know, keep this thing going kind of seven days a week Um, and just moving. But, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty all over the place as far as the topics. Yesterday, it was um, a three-hour call with the uh, government of Albania working on this national park that we're seeking to create around. It would be Europe's first free-flowing river national park around the Viosa that goes from the border of Greece across Albania to the Adriatic Sea. And then immediately from there, going into interviews with candidates and then into board discussions on a host of other topics. And so it is a lot of sort of nimbleness intellectually, but it's the best part of the job. Hmm. You spent, speaking of Albania, you, you spent the six years before you became CEO as running uh, Patagonia's uh, EMEA business, Europe, Middle East, Africa. Mm-hmm. What is that international experience or living outside the U.S.? What does that bring to you in this current role? And do you recommend uh, having that kind of non-U.S. experience or leaving your country of origin as a way to be better at business? Yeah, you know, I've done that twice in my career. I spent five years living and working in China with a former company. And then I spent six years, as you mentioned, based in Amsterdam, but looking after a portfolio that was across Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I think both those experiences were some of the most transformational of my career. In both of those experiences, I was kind of in GM roles. And so I had broad responsibility. I think the two things that I took away from those experiences, both of which I think are really foundationally important in this role, one is is just seeing the world, seeing the business that you're a part of, seeing the industry, seeing the sports that you're a part of through a different lens from a different part of the world and through other people's eyes. In the case of the experience with Patagonia and being in Europe, that also included seeing a broad set of issues and topics around sustainability, the climate and ecological crisis through the prism of other cultures. And I thought that was that was really valuable. Understanding that I think the tempo is imperfect as it is in fighting the climate and ecological crisis is probably being set in Europe, not here in America or North America. I think the other lesson that I learned that I, I really believe has been foundationally important for me is when you're operating, and I'll use Europe as an example, if you're walking into a room with your leadership team and you have you are having conversations on distribution strategies across the European continent, by definition, I will never know as much or have as much experience as my head of sales who is a European or on people and culture issues, same statement, or on marketing issues, same statement, or on operational issues. And so you've got to get pretty comfortable very quickly in being the having the least amount of expertise of anybody in the room, arguably, on almost every single topic you're talking about. And I think it brings a certain amount of humility. I think it requires a certain amount of humility. It also requires constantly asking yourself, where do I add value? You know, what what is my role in this setting? And I think first and foremost, it's creating culture and contributing to that, creating a space where all of our people can build culture. I think it means finding the best ideas and championing them and moving them forward. And I think ultimately, and this is a never ending job, it means really creating a sense of team. And a team, in my opinion, has never been about a collection of talent. A team is a team. It's a team is people coming together with a shared vision and sacrificing and flexing for that vision, even their own interests. And were you always good at that? Or is that something you, you've had to learn, that kind of humility, that accepting that other people are the experts in the room? 
I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty introverted and humble person. I'd like to think sometimes people describe me as confident, which always seems really dissonant with how I feel about myself, but I don't think that part of it's been difficult. I think I've learned a lot about how to manifest that in a leadership role where you're actually adding value and pushing things forward. But finding that balance between being decisive and providing leadership where you feel it's needed and also stepping back and allowing that to come up in other ways. So I think I'm as imperfect as anybody at that. Great. couple questions coming in about your marketing strategy. Uh, Lise and Inge both want to know how you think about marketing and what you look for. We don't really think about marketing in a, in a very traditional sense. I mean, we do some product and categorical marketing that might look a little bit similar to uh, traditional marketing, but that's not really much of what we're engaged in. We don't do a lot of paid advertising. I think what we seek to talk about our values and how they manifest themselves in the business or in product. We try to talk a lot about the performance aspects of product coupled with kind of the footprint innovation that we work really hard to institutionalize in everything that we do. Um, and we also spend a lot of our time, money, voice, and otherwise, just kind of front staging the work of partners and grantees that we have relationships with. So that's that's really how we think about kind of broad communications. And it's always this, you know, we're for-profit business, and we've got to figure out how to cover all of our costs to do the work that we do. I think that there is a real need for us to continue to make product that people want and provide service that people appreciate and respect. And at the same time, that really is in conflict with our concerns around growth and our concerns around making too much product and putting too much product in the world. So that's one of those many contradictions that we wrestle with often here at Patagonia. I think that's one of the most interesting things when you listen to Patagonia talk and, and your marketing messages, this idea of recycling and of reusing and of continuing to use products and while you're a company, as you say, that needs to keep selling and keep growing. So what are those discussions like? It is a contradiction. And so I think if anybody thinks we've distilled it down to here's the answer, it just doesn't seem it's we found that answer. I think what we have found is a set of values and what we have invested in consistently are ways to bring those values to life. And so it's not just about saying these are the things that are important to us. It's and these are the ways that we're investing in that. And so when I think about Black Friday and, and all the sort of other days that have names now that follow that. From Friday to Sunday that weekend, our focus is going to be on doing repair events and repairing product, but also teaching our community and customers to do product repair themselves from Friday to Sunday. And then on the Monday that follows, we're going to be focused. We're actually doing our first ever sale on warnware.com, which is the sale of secondhand products. So product will be available at roughly probably 70% or so below its original full price. And this is, again, secondhand product. And then on that Tuesday, we're going to front stage all the work that our grantees are doing and create awareness and opportunities for people to participate through skilled volunteering on Patagonia Action Works and, and, and petitioning and showing up at events and other things in that space. And so that's really how we're thinking about this upcoming period of time. And those are examples of the kind of programs that we continue to invest in. Repair is something that has been a foundational part of Patagonia for decades. We've got over 100 people at our Reno Repair Center working full-time on product repair. And um, we've got a big footprint in Japan, another big footprint in Europe, and, and other parts of the world where we have a business. And so that's an example of something. It's not just an idea or a story, but it's a scaled part of our business. And in that example, it's a cost center. Hmm. Very different approach to uh, Black Friday and the days after that. 
One more question coming from uh, Lars Lar Reese, who wants to know how you think about opening up stores in this slowing environment. I'm guessing that's Lars from uh, Denmark. It might be somebody I know. Um, how do we think about opening stores in this environment? I think uh, in Europe, we could benefit from a few more stores. And in some markets, we actually have a pretty small retail footprint. So regardless of the fact that this is a tightening marketplace, we'll continue to make investments there. We'll probably be a bit more conservative here in the U.S. Ultimately, we're just conservative with our footprint of retail stores. We want every store to be kind of a gift to the local community. We really prioritize unique spaces with unique histories, removing more material often than adding. And where we use materials, flooring and others, we local source recycled and refurbished materials. That's a that's a, a big part of our strategy. But as a result of all that, every retail store that we operate anywhere around the world is pretty unique. We have a set of values again here on kind of how we think about retail, but we don't have a playbook on how we open retail stores. And as a result, we've got a pretty small global retail footprint. Love to finish off every uh, interview with the same question, which is about career advice. So many of us are looking for answers on how to get ahead, whether you're starting at your job or whether you've been in it for a while. Is there something you tell people when they're starting off, when they try to figure out how to have a path like you've had? I have to give a disclaimer anytime I'm offering career advice. I, I did a four-year degree, then I did a master's degree in, in an MBA in business. And the first real job I had was working in a warehouse at a, at a company called Black Diamond Equipment in Salt Lake City. And I, I did that um, you know, for probably 5 or $6 an hour because I really wanted to work in the climbing industry. I grew up in Florida and I wasn't really a surfer myself. I surf a bit, but my brother was an aspiring professional surfer and people I grew up around were really passionate about it. And what I saw were a bunch of people who were able to forge careers tied to their passion. And that always really had an impact on me. And so when I started rock climbing, I was dead set on on, on trying to do the same because I felt like that was a sport I was going to spend the rest of my life doing. So first job I had was working in a warehouse. Not sure I would suggest that everybody do exactly the same, but I think what I have always really tried to do, and I do think this is, is pretty good advice, find things that you're passionate about and be relentless in pursuing those things and learn at every step along the way. I think prior to working at Black Diamond, probably some of the best learnings I had professionally were waiting tables. I was pretty introverted and quiet and forcing myself to engage with people that looked like they had done pretty well in life and were pretty successful, pushed me to the edge of my comfort zone and taught me probably as much as almost any professional experience I've had. But I think it's just really absorbing as many lessons as you can at everything you do, figure out what you're really passionate about and pursue it with the kind of passion that it, it deserves if you're really, really serious about wanting to create not just a, a career for yourself that provides for yourself and your family, but something that you just love getting out of bed every day and doing. That was Ryan Gellert, Patagonia CEO. Looking for more great ideas to sustain you? Make sure to check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working. One of the things that stuck with me from this conversation was Ryan's humility. He mentioned that while running Patagonia in Europe, he would frequently be the person in the room who had the least expertise. He relied on his specialists to tell him what was going on and where things needed to go, and he was learning from them. I also loved his comment that Patagonia is still struggling to find the balance between being anti-consumerism and being a company that relies on selling consumer products. It's hard to admit that you don't have an answer yet, and Ryan did just that. I always love hearing your own takeaways. The remixing of these shows with your own experience is the key to creating new knowledge. 
Please share with me what you're finding and what you're learning using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. Also, please remember to rate and review us on your favorite podcast listening app and tell a friend or colleague. That kind of word of mouth is what sustains the show. This Is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Stephen Valdivia, Elias Avalos, Taisha Henry, Victoria Taylor, and Candace Weiner. Mixing is done by DeGiorgi. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.